Hello, everyone. Hello and welcome to tonight's event, Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations. Can business respond to the climate crisis? My name is Amanda McKenzie and I'm the CEO of the Climate Council and your moderator for tonight's proceedings. And before I start, I would like to just acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney has been built. Indigenous Australians, as many of you would know, are at the front line of many of the impacts of climate change, from sea level rise in the Torres Strait to heat impacts across remote communities. Those that are already disadvantaged uh, are often the most disadvantaged by climate change. But at the same time, there is a lot more that contemporary Australian society can learn about managing the Australian landscape and having a healthy respect for nature from Indigenous cultures and Indigenous people. Now to tonight's session. I'm sure you're well aware that climate change is progressing apace. The latest data just out over the last few days from NOAA in the United States shows that this year will almost certainly be the hottest year on record. That follows closely from the last hottest year on record, which was only last year in 2014. In Sydney, heat waves now occur 50%, uh, sorry, heat waves are 50% longer than they used to be. They start 19 days earlier than they used to start and they're 1.5 degrees hotter than they used to be. And pity the poor people in Adelaide, the hottest days in their heat waves are 4.5 degrees hotter than they used to be. Extreme weather has real consequences, more dangerous fire weather for food and water security, and of course, the health of the most vulnerable people in our community. But on, at the same time, there is a story of hope here. The falling cost of renewable energy is seeing a huge boom around the world. And this has happened even in Australia, despite uh, a difficult policy environment, where 1.4 million people now have solar panels on their roof, which is world leading worldwide. Our citizens are really taking action. Similarly, countries are stepping up their action uh, globally, moving forward to the Paris Conference. But of course, as we well know, it is inadequate. There is far, far more that needs to be done if we are going to avert the climate crisis and prevent catastrophe. So what role can business play, the engine of economic growth? And uh, what role will it play in tackling the climate crisis? Fossil fuel companies have led denial campaigns which has set climate change back for decades. I think the best analogy is probably to the tobacco industry that set back action uh, to inform people about the effects of smoking by spreading doubt for decades. Similarly, doubt has been spread on the science of climate change for decades, holding back action. Many country, companies, though, have taken steps to reduce their impact with varying levels of success. Some have been rightly accused of greenwash, and you only have to look at the most recent VW scandal to see that. But on the other hand, many companies have now been built around solutions, uh, sustainable building or renewable energy. But in a finite world, can a philosophy of perpetual growth that drive our businesses and our economies, can it make sense? Can capitalism be restrained to work in the long-term interests of humanity to have a stable climate and a healthy environment? Does a philosophy of profit maximisation mean that businesses will always exploit the environment? And is there an alternative way to do business? 
Tonight, we're tackling these thorny issues, and we have three brilliant speakers who will speak for about sort of 10 to 15 minutes each. And then they'll join a panel immediately afterwards, and you'll have an opportunity to ask questions. So I'd like to introduce our first speaker, which is Clive Hamilton, who many of you will know. He's a professor of public ethics at the Charles Sturt University and one of the country's most prominent public intellectuals. He's the founder and former executive director of the progressive think tank, the Australia Institute. He's published extensively on the issues of political economy, ethics and climate. And Professor Hamilton is also a member of the Climate Change Authority, which has played a really important role over the last few years in um, pushing forward climate change policy. Please welcome Clive to the stage. Thanks very much, uh, Amanda, for that uh, lovely welcome, and to Chris and Daniel for the invitation, and uh, congratulations for this uh, fabulous book that uh, we're here to launch um, tonight. So it's a great pleasure to, to be here to play a part in uh, launching, Sydney launch at least, of this uh, very important new book. And um, as uh, you probably already know, it's a book about what global corporations do uh, to keep the wheels of the system turning in the face of uh, dire warnings uh, on the part of the climate scientists, uh, including every science academy in the world, uh, warnings that things must change. And the book focuses on how the uh, dominant global culture persuades those who are angry about the lack of urgency in action on climate change to express their anger in more system-compatible ways, ways uh, that allow the system and the problems it causes to carry on pretty much as business as usual. So this, so this book shows us, I think for the first time in a, in a persuasive and systematic way, how, as the, uh, as the book itself says, quote, corporations are shaping humanity's response to the climate crisis. And as I uh, write in the preface, the authors uh, show in fascinating detail that it's not that the executives who run these corporations are evil, um, they simply function in the way that the system dictates. And if they don't like it, they just have to leave and they'll get in more compliant uh, executives to, um, to carry on with the charade. But, of course, the way governments uh, function is at the centre of the problem too because only governments can compel corporations to act in ways uh, that don't uh, cause the climate to be uh, disrupted. And so this evening I want to deviate a bit from the uh, theme of the book to comment not on how our governments are allowing corporations to carry on with minimal change, but how the government, our federal government in Australia, is suppressing environmental groups, the very people who want to take the scientists' warnings seriously. Now, political scientist Mark Hudson has recently drawn our attention to the escalating rhetoric uh, from industry and the radical right. Rhetoric uh, that is, uh, attempts to paint environmental activists as terrorists. And so, a little over a year ago, the uh, coalition MP George Christensen said that North Queensland would, quote, no longer bow down to eco-terrorists and would uh, call out these gutless green germs for the terrorists they are. Right-wing commentator Judith Sloan also referred to environmental activists as eco-terrorists. The coal industry often warns about, quote, environmental extremists 
uh, with Australian Coal Association Chief Nikki Williams ramping it up by describing anti-coal activists as, quote, sociopaths and terrorists. Um, our uh, recently departed uh, Prime Minister's Chief Business Advisor, Morris Newman, uh, often claimed, and still does, that climate catastrophists uh, want to, quote, end democracy and establish global communist rule. <laughs> now, it's natural to laugh at this uh, foolishness, but the truth is that the federal government is getting very serious about suppression of, environment, uh, suppression of environmental activism. When the uh, Mackay uh, Conservation Group recently won a legal battle to enforce the provisions of the Environmental um, uh, Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, uh, in its insistence that the approvals process for the Adani mine should actually adhere to the provisions of the Act, when they succeeded in that, course, that court case, the government in Canberra went into rhetorical overdrive. Uh, then Prime Minister uh, Tony Abbott described as legal sabotage. Treasurer Joe Hockey attacked the, quote, bullies in the Green Movement. And describing the legal action as vigilante litigation, Attorney General George Brandis, he's still around, uh, moved immediately to change the environmental protection laws to prevent this kind of legal challenge ever happening again. The government also branded the court case extreme green lawfare. Now, lawfare is a word that was previously absent from the Australian political lexicon, and it refers to the use of law as a weapon of war, an offensive action against an enemy without force of arms, but deploying domestic and international law. And the use of this term is very revealing. The conservatives who use it believe they are at war with environmentalists. The extraordinarily intemperate outbursts from the former Prime Minister down, terrorists, sociopaths, saboteurs, bullies, vigilantes, have been so uh, over the top that they reveal, I think, a deep fear and loathing uh, by conservatives for environmentalism. But it's not just rhetoric. In recent years, they've put their threats into action. So we've seen uh, the raising to draconian levels uh, penalties for protesting at coal-fired power plants. Uh, the government has sent counter-terrorist operatives from ASIO and the Australian Federal Police to spy on and infiltrate protests and protest groups. Actually, that was begun uh, by Martin Ferguson, the former Labor Minister. And uh, this government has moved to strip environmental groups of their charitable status. I mean, the truth is, for most environmental groups uh, and other groups, their, their charitable status is their most valuable asset. And to take it away from them would, um, uh, uh, for many of them, uh, destroy them pretty much overnight. Of course, uh, taking the charitable status away from environmental groups has been um, a, a crucial goal for the Institute of Public Affairs for many years. One of the most insidious developments of recent times has been the use of the very serious threat of violent terrorism to vilify environmental activists by lumping them together into the same basket. And I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago in the notorious case of Karen, the eco-terrorist. As you know, Australia does have a very worrying problem of radicalised Islamists committing or planning to commit 
violent acts, uh, including bombings, stabbings, and as we now know, regrettably, very regrettably, murder. Responding to the radicalisation process, the federal government has developed its Living Safe Together campaign, which includes a booklet, um, and the booklet fo focuses on uh, the processes uh, by which young people might be turned from uh, being ordinary uh, law-abiding members of society into violent fanatics. And those being radicalised, the booklet tells us, typically uh, go through a process which involves cutting themselves off from society, begin to use hate rhetoric, blame an enemy for uh, the world's ills, dehumanise uh, opposition groups, become increasingly suspicious of everyone other than those in their uh, clique, and collect and share violent material from the internet. And what is disturbing, fair enough, uh, but what is disturbing about um, uh, all of this is that among the kinds of violent extremists the pamphlet identifies as threatening, quote, Australia's core values and principles are those motiv by, motivated by environmental causes. And the documents, document illustrates the problem with a number of case studies allegedly drawn from real life. And among them is uh, the case study, now uh, probably true to say the infamous case study, of Karen, an environmental activist who appears, there are another three case studies that the booklet identifies, and those other three are Kazal, the would-be Al-Qaeda assassin, uh, Aaron, the Muslim-bashing neo-Nazi, and Jay, the paramilitary jihadi. And what happened to Karen, kind of summary of, of this uh, story here, is that she's a fun-loving university student, she's probably going to Sydney University, and uh, she attends an environmental protest, protest and gets mixed up with a radical green group. She becomes increasingly absorbed in the extreme, this extremist faction and drops out of university to devote herself uh, to uh, radical action, in particular forest protests. And so she cuts off links with her loving family. Uh, she drifts away from her friends. Uh, she begins, becomes completely absorbed in this radical faction. She begins to see herself as, quote, a soldier for the environment. And she goes out spiking trees, sabotaging machinery, and getting into punch-ups with police and loggers, ending up in jail. By squeezing Karen into the radicalisation template, which the booklet sets out, uh, this um, document presents a ludicrous tabloid version of the making of a dangerous greenie. For anyone who knows anything about green activist groups and those who join them, the story is risible. So who is Karen? Well, she seems to be a figment of the lurid imagination of Attorney General George Brandis, <laughs> who wants to change the laws to novel, quote, radical green activists so that they can't, quote, sabotage development. But the truth is that there is no violent environmental extremism in Australia. None. And there's no threat of it, certainly not against persons. There has, of course, been a surge in civil disobedience, most recently organised by Lock the Gate, and bringing together farmers and environmentalists to, to attempt to obstruct mining activities. But there's nothing in common be between these non-violent acts of civil disobedience and those of the Muslim youth who murdered a police employee in Parramatta a week or so ago. There's nothing in common with these activists 
uh, and man Haran Monas, who gunned down innocent uh, citizens at the Link Cafe. To put them in the same category is obscene. More than that, it's sinister and extremely dangerous to our democracy. Now, the Attorney General's Department says it prepared uh, this booklet um, based on the expertise provided by Monash University's Global Terrorism Research Centre. Well, if the centre has such a woefully inaccurate understanding of environmental activism, one has to ask whether all of the advice uh, it gives to the government is based on tabloid headlines and right-wing paranoia. In addition to the, its booklet, um, the, which incidentally the booklet is due to be distributed to school children throughout Australia, uh, the government is also uh, distributing around the country in movie cinemas, for example, uh, this postcard, which is urging, urging citizens to be on the lookout for radicalisation to violence. A reader of a uh, column of mine sent this to me. He picked it up in a cinema. And uh, the postcard was created, instead of those who might be interested, uh, and, distrib and is distributed by the Sydney company Avant Card. Avant Card. Now, what is striking, as you'll see, about the image chosen for this postcard um, is that none of the signs and symbols on it point to al-Qaeda or ISIS or, or terrorist groups. Instead, the symbols are those of the urban peace and environmental activists. We see the familiar anti-war symbol, the dove of peace, the triangle used by the Greens and lock the gate, and... The person there is an inner-city graffiti artist in a hoodie, which reminds us not of an ISIS killer, but perhaps a Banksy um, with a touch of René Magritte. But the caption on the back of the card, um, which is headed Radical Change, reads, using fear, terror or violence or supporting its use for ideological, political or social change is illegal. This is violent extremism. So what's the purpose of inventing the threat of violent environmental extremism? Well, the answer is that some conservatives regard non-violent civil disobedience as morally equivalent to violent extremism and which therefore demands a matching response. When this kind of anti-green fanaticism is officially endorsed and actively promoted by the Commonwealth, the paranoia of a right-wing fringe is validated. Apart from anything else, the diversion of attention and resources from the genuine threat of extremist violence to the invented threat of environmental activism means that fewer resources are devoted to protecting the community from the real dangers of extremist violence. Well, to finish, I've deviated, of course, from the topic of the book we're launching today, but this topic is something that's animating me in particular at the moment. Um, but beneath um, uh, my commentary here and the book's argument lies one common theme, of course, and that is the unwillingness of our government to take the warnings of the climate scientists sufficiently serious means that their priorities are profoundly wrong. Extremist violence is a serious problem in Australia, but it doesn't threaten our way of life. Climate change does. And it's the corporations that are stopping action 
who represent a profound danger to all that we love. So this book by Christopher Wright and Daniel Nyberg goes inside their world and shows us just how they're doing it. And so I commend this book wholeheartedly and wish it well. Thanks very much. Thank you, Clive, for that very thought-provoking presentation. Um, I'd now like to ask Chris Wright to come to the stage. Um, he is a professor of organisational studies and a leader of the Balanced Enterprise Research Network right here at the University of Sydney. His current research explores organisational and societal responses to anthropogenic climate change, particularly how managers and business organisations interpret and respond. And of course, we've got the new book, which we're launching today, which is Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations. And it's written, of course, with Daniel Nyberg as well. It will be available at the end up the back. Um, so please welcome Chris Wright. Thanks very much, Amanda. And um, thank you, Clive, for that marvellous talk and, of course, for agreeing to write the forward to our book, Climate Change, Capitalism and Corporations. Uh, when Daniel and I decided to write the book um, based on our research, we were keen to reach out to prominent critical thinkers at the forefront of the debate over the climate crisis. Um, so some of these people generously uh, read early drafts of the book, uh, provided valuable comments and later endorsements. Um, they included noted environmentalists uh, such as Bill, Bill McKibben, climate scientist Michael Mann, academics Andy Hoffman and Peter Deverne, and leaders of major NGOs like David Ritter, uh, who we'll hear from in a moment. But Clive's involvement was particularly relevant uh, as his writings on climate change had a powerful impact on our thinking. For instance, I can remember hearing Clive talk at a packed Sydney Writers' Festival in 2010 at the Sydney Town Hall. It was a panel discussion which also included Tim Flannery, Ross Garno, Bill McKibben. As the speakers progressed, uh, the news on the climate crisis became more alarming. Clive was the last speaker and his address was riveting in its urgency as he outlined an argument around climate change as an existential threat to the future of human civilization. Um, as I was saying, Clive was the last speaker and his address was, was riveting in its urgency as he outlined an argument about climate change as an existential threat to the future of human civilization. It was thus um, a rather strange experience then going out in the months after that talk, interviewing senior managers in large corporations and hearing about how business viewed climate change as something that could be ameliorated within business as usual. And that's really where our book starts, uh, with the clear disconnect between the increasingly urgent science of a worsening crisis for humanity and life on the planet brought about by our addiction to fossil fuel-based energy and economic growth, and how our business leaders and indeed our politicians respond to the climate crisis, largely by doubling down on the bet of business as usual. In the book, we quote Elizabeth Colbert, author of The Sixth Extinction, who candidly states, quote, it may seem impossible to imagine that a technologically advanced society could choose in essence to destroy itself but that is what we're now in the process of doing. 
This suicidal logic, once articulated, uh, is of course difficult to understand. Why is it that we are now not responding to the urgent existential threat of anthropogenic climate change? Why is it that in the words of Frederick Jameson, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism? So our book seeks to unpack how and why this is occurring. Specifically, we argue global capitalism as a dominant economic system of our age has locked us into a process we term creative self-destruction. That is, our economies are now reliant upon ever more ingenious ways of exploiting the Earth's fossil fuel reserves and consuming the very life support systems we rely on for our survival. This is evident in the rush by some of the world's largest companies to embrace deep water and Arctic oil drilling, tar sands processing, new mega coal mines like the recently government-approved Adani Carmichael mine in Queensland, and of course the fracking of shale and coal seam gas. These examples highlight both the inventive genius of corporate capitalism and the blindness of industry and government to the ecological catastrophe they are fashioning. As Bill McKibben notes on the back of our book, it's possible that there's no greater example of corporate irresponsibility than climate change. I mean, these companies melted the Arctic and then rushed in to drill in the open water. But of course, awareness of environmental problems and growing criticism requires justification and response. And so in the book, Daniel and I seek to highlight the different ways in which businesses seek to respond to what Sir Nicholas Stern in the UK has characterised as, quote, the greatest market failure the world has ever seen. One response has been, of course, to deny the extent of the risk of climate change and to sow doubt about the science. And in the book, we document many instances of where fossil fueling companies like Exxon, for instance, uh, have promoted an orchestrated climate change denial, both politically and socially. However, a more sophisticated response has also emerged, evident in the language and practices of corporate environmentalism. Here, businesses and market forces are presented as our best hope of responding to the climate crisis, reducing companies' carbon footprint, greening their supply chain, developing new greener products and services, and promoting carbon pricing and market mechanisms are presented as the best response. It's a message that promises no conflicts and potentially no trade-offs. In this view, it is possible to address climate change while continuing the global expansion of consumption. There is no contradiction between material affluence and environmental well-being. It's also a vision that fits well within the dominant economic and political system of our time, neoliberalism or market fundamentalism. Alternative responses such as state regulation and mandatory restrictions on fossil fuel use are thus marginalised and viewed as counterproductive and even harmful. So this is how the environmental destruction built into our economic system is concealed. Dealing with this epic contradiction uh, of capitalism would require material trade-offs that challenge identities and challenge interests. But this is, of course, to paraphrase Al Gore, is a very inconvenient truth. And so we end up in a place of fundamental contradiction, that a problem brought about by overconsumption can be addressed through more consumption. This contradiction is particularly evident in the language of sustainability, so popular in contemporary business discussion. Business sustainability promotes a vision of incremental change in which increased eco-efficiency and carbon pricing will make organisations, and indeed society, a little less unsustainable. However, being a little less unsustainable 
is not the same as sustainability. To paraphrase climate scientist Kevin Anderson, many of our current responses to the climate crisis simply aim to slow our walk down the wrong road, when in fact we need to get off the wrong road and get on the right road. That is, we need to break with some of the basic principles of business as usual. Now, Clive mentioned this earlier, in presenting this argument, we're not suggesting that corporations and the people who work within them are somehow evil or morally deficient. They're simply doing what our economy demands and what we demand. In our modern market society, the maximisation of shareholder value is, of course, the dominant logic. Indeed, in the course of our research, we interviewed a great many genuinely climate change conscious managers and environmental specialists employed in major businesses. Many sought to, quote, save the planet, or at least leave it in a state where their children could still see birds flying and enjoy the natural world we now take for granted. These individuals identified strongly with the environment and sought to influence their organisations from within to be more environmentally sustainable. However, this is very tough work indeed. <coughs> Swimming against the tide in which the environment is simply a resource for value creation. Those in corporations concerned about climate change, what we termed the outsiders within, frequently express what they truly believed about climate change only in private. They compartmentalised their emotions and had to satisfy themselves with the small wins that are allowed within the discourse of business sustainability. This is why the alternative to business as usual is much harder to imagine and much easier to dismiss as the enemy of social well-being, what critics so often characterise as going back to living in caves or a return to the dark ages. Of course, there are alternatives emerging and perhaps one of the most powerful is around the burgeoning social movements arguing for climate justice and a more democratic grassroots campaign to keep fossil fuels in the ground and speed the transition to a large-scale renewable energy future. These are political battles that are playing out now and there is space for businesses to build coalitions with communities in generating a renewable reinvention of our energy and transport systems. That is a future we need to imagine now, as the window to avoid dangerous climate change becomes ever smaller. Climate change is the greatest challenge we will face this century. We need to challenge the imaginary of business as usual and search out a more viable future. And so to conclude on perhaps a more optimistic message, it's worth looking to those who see the climate crisis as also an opportunity to fashion a more equitable and democratic society. Despite the grim implications of our current path, and they are indeed grim, there is also something uplifting in recognising the scale of the challenge we now face. And so to quote, quote no, no one better, I guess, than Al Gore on this, he says in, in his book, uh, Our Future, we should feel a sense of joy that those of us alive today have a rare privilege that few generations in history have known, the chance to undertake an historic mission worthy of our best efforts. It should be seen as an honour to live in a time when the future of human civilization will be shaped forever by what we do now. Thank you. I love that inspiring but somewhat intimidating quote from Al Gore that emphasises how much this time actually matters and it's a privilege to be alive at a time that matters but also pretty scary to think about how we can make the most of that. Um, I'd like to introduce our next speaker, who is David Ritter, who's the Chief Executive of Greenpeace Australia Pacific. 
And before taking up his current position, David's worked in a number of senior roles in Greenpeace in uh, London. And um, before that, David was one of Australia's leading uh, Indigenous rights lawyers and he's published widely and commented in a whole range of public affairs capacities and he's the author of two books on native title. Please welcome David to the stage. Thanks very much, Amanda. Um, actually, I want to uh, start not only by acknowledging uh, the traditional owners uh, of the country on which this event's taking place, but um, to acknowledge the terrific work of the Climate Council. Um, it really does play a role in putting uh, objective, uh, very well-presented information about the best available client science out there. So thanks to the Climate Council for their work. And I want to acknowledge uh, Clive Hamilton. Now, Clive, um, has written some of the most useful and important books uh, on our bookshelves. He also, in Requiem to a Species, contributed to probably the uh, most solemn plane flight I've ever experienced. Um, uh, but in terms of truth-telling about the state of things, I think uh, the country is indebted to the work of Clive Hamilton, and I thank Clive for that. I also thank Clive for giving you a warning of the kind of company you're keeping this evening in agreeing to listen to me. I mean, I'm not wearing the hoodie tonight, uh, obviously, and I try not to frighten anyone by spray painting any peace signals, but obviously you've, you've you know, heard the, the worst of it. Um, you know, there'll be no painting of doves, I promise, at least while I'm here. Um, but we're here uh, this evening, of course, to honour the book that um, Christopher and Daniel have written. And I was reminded on the bus this morning, not in that metaphoric, oh, I was reminded of an amusing thing on my kind of way, but in a genuine, I pulled the book out to have another look at it uh, on the way into work this morning. Now, there were people around me with devices who sort of went, that gentleman has just pulled something very unusual out of his bag, what is it? Looks extraordinarily convenient. It seems to be information contained on paper that's compressed into a single volume. Um, and I really was reminded by just what a very, very good book it is. Um, and without wanting to encourage rash consumption, I do think it is a book that is worth buying. And it's worth buying because it is not a polemic which says simply that corporations are evil in a kind of intellectually lazy or vulgar way. Um, but it's also not yet another tome that buys into the myth of CSR. Um, it is, in fact, a sober, uh, deeply uh, critical, but always grounded in empirical analysis, highly nuanced, uh, and um, in my humble view as someone outside the academy, methodologically sophisticated book that really gives us a set of information about how things actually are within business. And... On reading it the first time, I found it very useful, and on reading it or glancing at it the second time, I was reminded just how useful it is. It is a book that is founded in political economy, and I think political economy is central to solving the climate crisis. So I was going to spend a few minutes just talking about why this book was so useful for Greenpeace, and I had some slides, but in the uh, face of the... Um, uh, computer sort of problem we have uh, tonight that, that's no doubt um, has entirely innocent explanations and is not the long hand of some corporation trying to interfere with getting the truth out. Um, so instead, just to sort of do it verbally, um, 
Greenpeace is an independent organisation in the sense that we take no money from government and no money from business. That actually gives a certain flavour to the campaigns that we will run to persuade business to do other things. Because when the conversation gets to, so what do you want us to do then, Greenpeace? The answer is never, oh, well, we can just agree some sponsorship arrangement and that'll make the campaign go away. And I've had more than one uh, senior executive sort of say that they've appreciated that kind of um, uh, dimension to things. So if we're not going there seeking to put our logo on a business product that gives us a revenue stream or something like that, then what are we going to do? Well, broadly, Greenpeace will identify a corporation that we need to campaign against when we identify that corporation as being one of the chief problems in a given area, whether it's climate change or whether it's deforestation or whether it's the pillaging of the oceans. And we will run a campaign that um, is often based around uh, damaging the brand of the company in question. And you may, if you Google Nestle killer um, or you Google Greenpeace Volkswagen dark side, oh, but we didn't know quite how dark, did we? Um, or Greenpeace Ken and Barbie or Greenpeace any number of other corporates, you'll see that we run these um, often highly successful brand attacks where what we will have done is some investigation that shows the way in which the corporation in question is heavily invested in environmental destruction as part of its business model and then by associating its public facing brand with that we'll gently encourage the corporation to take a different view on what they should do in the future. Um, when we run those campaigns, what we're trying to do is get companies that we think are doing the wrong thing to shift. There are other companies that may see opportunities to further enliven their brand by doing the right thing more. But there is always a balancing act here, and I think this is um, one of the reasons why the book we're talking about this evening is so valuable because every campaign that we run around any corporation ultimately has to have as its goal um, the enlivening of the democratic space. So every time we are contesting with a corporation, whether it is a shell um, who, by the way, if you missed the news, have now backed out of its, uh, has now backed out of its Arctic madness, its Arctic uh, drilling program, one of the reasons they cited was, well indeed, um, one of the reasons they cited was regulatory uncertainty, so we put something around of a protester in a kayak with the caption, this is what regulatory uncertainty looks like. Um, uh, whether it's uh, a campaign against a shell, whether it's a campaign against a, a former forest destroyer like Asia Pulp and Paper that is now committed to uh, only develop on degrade lands in Indonesia or whoever it might be, the ultimate aim has to be not simply winning the campaign but trying to reassert the sovereignty of the people, the sovereignty of the people against the corporations that have corrupted our political system. And when we say corrupted, it doesn't, we're not talking about paper bags, or I mean, of course that occurs sometimes. 
but we're talking about not corruption, but corrupting. And the corrupting influence is in the form of the functioning of business plans in which corporations openly talk about influencing the regulatory environment, which means lobbyists and lawyers and lunches. And um, this is, again, why this book is so important, because it describes, it invokes this universe. And that is the environment, that is the political economy that has led to the maladjustment, the maldevelopment of our body politic that ultimately every campaign has to have as its ancillary aim to do something about. And that's the point where I'd like to finish. And actually, it's finishing um, in complete harmony with uh, what Chris had to say. Climate change being so urgent, climate change being so urgent, the figures that the Climate Council, that Bill McKibben, that, that, that Greenpeace, that the, uh, the UNFCCC, the Australian government when it's run by sane people, all of the figures that are put out tell us how urgent. So we have always been focused on, well, how do we do this as quickly as possible? And that has to some extent led us away from the reality that uh, to, to uh, invoke Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything analysis. In order to succeed on the thing that is most urgent, we actually have to succeed on the system itself. That we cannot actually win as quickly as we need to win inside a system which functions to prevent us winning. That's what it does. The logic of neoliberalism and the logic of entrenched corporate control prevent us from succeeding. So the thing that is most urgent also invites this system challenge that we have to undertake. But again, to, to echo the note sounded by Chris, it is also our last best chance for making a better society. It is our last best chance for rolling back the things that have taken away our universities from us, that have hollowed out our communities, that have alienated us from our own system of government. This is our chance. So we shouldn't be daunted by what stands in front of us, but instead embrace it as the best opportunity we've got. Now, there are very, very few things I disagree with Clive Hamilton about, very, very few things indeed. But I don't accept the analysis that the, the most valuable asset that environmental organisations in Australia have is charitable status. Um, and I don't accept that analysis for two reasons. One, because I think um, what should not be seen as an asset, but simply the appropriate status that is conferred on anybody that meets the High Court's definition of what is a charity. Um, I, I'm sort of loath to concede that's an asset, although I do absolutely understand, Clive, that you come from the most honourable possible place in putting it that way. But even, even if we accept that it is a valuable asset, there is one asset that will always be more valuable, and that asset is the power and determination of the Australian people. And if there is a reason to be excited, enthusiastic, optimistic about where we find ourselves, it is because of that reservoir that is the power and determination of the Australian people. 
And when you listen to the insiderist analysis that tells you that the reason why Tony Abbott was rolled was because of some of elite politics, do not accept it. Because the reason why Tony Abbott was rolled was because of the power and determination of an Australian electorate who did not regard as legitimate a program that had not been given to them prior to an election, but was instead foist upon them afterwards with the worst kind of bullying and farrago. So be absolutely confident in what we can achieve. And as we look to achieving it, make sure you've got a copy of this book written by these two fellows under your arm, because it's a mighty fine bit of analysis. Thank you.